interactive, but it's not so much about me interacting with you as us interacting with God. Um, and so, right off the bat, I want to start us off by encouraging you to have that attitude throughout the next little while. We're going to have songs in between, so you don't have to listen to me blather on for an extended period. I'll blather a bit, and then you can rest and worship and gather your strength. Um, but yeah, we're going to mix that between a bit of thinking and teaching and then worship. And so it's, a, it's an opportunity to respond. It's an opportunity to take the idea and then spend time in worship, wrestling with God maybe, worshipping God maybe, asking God questions maybe, whatever that might be for you, wherever you are in your journey, in your life right now, it's an opportunity to let the Spirit do something extraordinary. Um, and so I urge you to take that. Um, and as we worship, let's worship in spirit and in truth and with our minds. Let's really, yeah, think about these things and worship. So yes, let's get going with some scripture. Always a good place to start and end and never end. So we're going to read from Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 28. So I'm going to read from 28 to 40. If you'd like to follow along. So Jesus was doing some stuff, and then after he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices, all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And I love this. I was chatting with Bevan earlier as well. But it's just a narrative. It's just a story. Yeah. So here we have Luke. He's not throwing in poetic devices or crazy elaborations or anything. It's just literally a story of a day in Jesus' life. But no day in Jesus' life is ever just ordinary. And in this passage, there are layers and layers and ideas and ideas um, that we could preach on for the whole year. But uh, we're going to focus on some small pieces so that we go home before midnight. So, let's perhaps start with one of the biggest takeaways from this passage. Jesus is publicly announcing himself. He's publicly revealing his nature as the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior for the Jewish people. And elsewhere earlier in Scripture, he'll perform a miracle and then tell the person, you know, keep it quiet. Or he'll 
grown withdrawal. He'll be very subtle. He's not drawing attention to himself as some sort of figurehead. Because probably if he had had, you know, they would have immediately rushed and made him king and then pitches, pitchforks and torches and rebellion. But here, he does. He deliberately comes and makes it clear that he is the Messiah. He goes out of his way to fulfill this prophecy in Zechariah 9 of riding on the colt. He is here to be glorified. But when Jesus talks of himself being glorified, he means a very, very different thing to what the crowd is thinking when they see this king coming to Jerusalem. But in any case, this is the last moment where Jesus accepts the praise. He is now bringing glory to the Father. This is the part of the preordained plan where people glorify him, the Jews glorify him, and glorify the Father. And in John 12, in John's version of this, we have an explicit God's voice coming down and glorifying Jesus. And let's, let us join that Mass as we sing a song, a sound of adoration. And let's praise Jesus. Let's worship his name as these people would have. As his disciples who saw Lazarus raised from the dead, these people praising Jesus for the miracles they had seen. Let us join in worship.
in Jerusalem, all there to celebrate Passover, and people coming down with him down the Mount of Olives, they were filled with hope. Was this the Messiah who has come to lead a rebellion and free them from the rule of the Romans? And we'll discuss later the bitter irony of this military freedom idea. But let's think, for example, Lazarus was one of those there with Jesus. Lazarus is the living proof of Jesus either as an extraordinary prophet or as something a little bit more than a prophet. And there would have been a lot of people in the crowd who had witnessed Lazarus' rising from the dead. And they were there telling people, this is Jesus who raised that man over there. Go talk to him. That's Lazarus. You raise him from the dead. And I mean, there's this whole bustle and turmoil of, have you heard about Jesus? And then people coming and praising, Hosanna, Hosanna, peace in heaven. And Jesus is proclaiming himself king and messiah by darkness. He doesn't quiet them. He says, the stones are going to cry out if, if you shut them up. The fact that people may have misunderstood this moment of glorification is another matter. Jesus definitely leaves no doubt as to his identity. But he subverts the popular expectations. And this is more or less the story of Jesus' life, right? People have one idea of him, and he's like, actually, no. But we, just like the Jews then, are definitely guilty of having misconceptions about Jesus and about God. We continuously have to wrestle with this fact that it's really hard to have a consistent, clear picture of the God of the universe who became human. Like, it's a lot to think about. But it's also something where we very easily stray into this idea of projecting our idea of what a God should be onto the image of Jesus. How often do we see him as a healer on demand? Maybe a tyrant holding back mercy from his people. Maybe a figurehead around which to build some kind of monolithic resistance movement. All these images built around our idea of what God should be. And yet all of this for the Jews who wanted a conquering king with a spear in one hand and a sword in the other. He flips us all around as he carries his cross inexorably to Golgotha. There's a beautiful old Methodist hymn which says, Oh, the bitter shame and sorrow that a time should ever be 
when I let the Savior's pity plead in vain and proudly answered, all of self and none of thee. And it's this idea of how much is me, how much is God? How much of my understanding of God is me, and how much of my understanding of God is God? And that's, it's hard to wrestle with. But it's something that Jesus challenges us to wrestle with. Who do we think he is? Who do we say he is? And it can be hard to see him as he really is. Like I said, it's complicated. How, how is God man? How can God be man in spirit? How can he be human and yet this extraordinary creative being who sustains everything at once by his own willpower? But to all of us, what's very clear is that Jesus came as the Messiah. Subverting expectations, to be sure. But the Messiah nonetheless. The true Messiah, as prophesied in Scripture. And in this triumph, there is something undeniably beautiful about the upside-down nature of God's kingdom and the demonstration of that, which is this triumphal entry. If Jesus had wanted, he could have had people organize a purple carpet, a white horse, a stallion. And there's a great skillet song about the, um, the Revelation version of God's, God's coming called White Horse. And you know, this is the one where Jesus is coming in almighty power. And we know that's coming. That's a, that's a different uh, bit of prophecy. Uh, yeah. Jesus doesn't come like this. He comes in absolute humility, riding a donkey. Yes, a donkey like an ancient lawgiver or an ancient judge. Still important. But a borrowed donkey, nonetheless. It's not even his donkey. Um, if he had wanted to, he could have mustered an army. He probably could have got enough you know, semi-trained militia to just go out and, and uproot the, the Roman oppression. I mean, he could have called down legions of angels, no problem, right? This is Jesus. If he had wanted to, all of those things were at his, at his disposal. And he could have set up a kingdom of the earth to rival Solomon's splendor and put Solomon's splendor in the dust. But that's the thing, right? Is that Jesus' kingdom is at cross-purposes with our human nature. He arrived in a triumph of poverty. He came to save the least regarded by humans. He had a retinue of courtiers like any king or you know, great person would have had. But instead of the best and the wisest and the fanciest, he had fishermen and dodgy tax collectors. Right? And he claimed his throne not at the palace, but at the temple. And this is the kingdom in which we are invited to serve. A kingdom where humility is one of the greatest attributes. And where the highest place is reserved for the humblest disciple. And that's a challenge. And that's something for us to wrestle with. And something else to ask. If God the creator, the sovereign, all-powerful God of time, beyond time, beyond space, beyond our mortal brain's comprehension, can come as a human and walk in the dust. How can we humble ourselves to serve him? Let's sing and worship as we wrestle with us.
Continuing on Luke verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day, what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Yo. That, that went down from coming and trying to Jesus having the blessing and the curse of knowing. And this reveals a very different side of Jesus' thoughts as he entered this final critical stretch of his preordained ministry. Whilst he was coming in glory to fulfill the law and prophets, he also had to wrestle with his knowledge that his people were remaining too stubborn to fully repent and be saved as a nation on the earth. You can almost imagine him walking down or riding down that hill and just seeing a vision of 40 years' time being overlaid as the Romans came through and demolished Jerusalem. A crushing wave of military force. In fact, the very kind of force that Jesus was so steadfastly against being part of. Can we imagine the thoughts flowing through our Savior's head at this tumultuous moment? And we think about the knowledge that before the week was out, you would be flogged, nailed to a cross, left hanging for passers-by to stare at as some oddity. The knowledge that he was going to suffer like no human could ever suffer by being utterly severed from the presence of his father after a lifetime of constant communion. And while he will weep bitter tears at Gethsemane about this coming moment as his own reckoning approaches, his tears here are not for himself. His tears are for those who have seen but have chosen not to believe those who are not able to understand the truth of God's nature. His treasured people of earth who he cared for, who he loved, who the Father had walked with in so many different ways over the years. And we were going to suffer annihilation because they could not acknowledge God among them. And because of this, God was forced reluctantly to remove his hand of protection and allow the forces of evil on earth to have their destructive way. And so, as this happens, we have to wrestle with this bittersweet Hosanna. And we're going to sing now, Hosanna, that as the people praise Jesus with this term Hosanna, which had come to be a shout of acclamation, a shout of praise, meaning saved, 
Jesus had to face the knowledge that many of these people would reject the salvation he is trying to offer them. And so as, yeah, as he has this Hosanna being shouted at him, he knows that someone's not going to choose to be saved, even as he brings that salvation. So yeah, let's sing and contemplate. And even if you don't sing the words, just think about this, this Hosanna, this Jesus who came even for those who did not want him. This Jesus who came to save those who would accept him. Those who were willing to see him, he would save him. And this Jesus who wept for those who were unable to see him. Yeah.
Let us praise God for his majesty and his glory. Let us also praise God for his deeply sympathetic, sacrificial love. Jesus wept. He took time to mourn for what must be due to our hard-heartedness as human beings. He foresaw yet another destruction of his father's chosen people, but he kept going to bring a greater hope to all peoples. And as we'll reflect on throughout this week, although Jesus' suffering in the lead up to his crucifixion was immense, he held fast to the Father's will, even up to the very last moment where the Father's presence left him to die utterly alone as the final sacrifice, breaking the chains of sin. And let's not forget the end of the story. Even though this week starts with Jesus coming in glory and Jesus mourning for Jerusalem in an upside-down triumph, we know how it ends. It ends with the greatest comeback in the history of cosmic warfare. And while this entry to Jerusalem completely turns around our idea of human wisdom and makes us question what we know and what we understand about power and the dynamics of power, which are still rippling through society today, Jesus is still countercultural, even 2,000 years later. But the death and resurrection of Jesus really makes us face the fact and open our minds to the idea that, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It really is. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And this message also calls us really to think about our response to the revelation of Christ as King. Because we have this beautiful tension between the glorious ruler, whose peace will be proclaimed to the nations and whose rule will extend from sea to sea, 
And that's the verse following Zechariah 9 prophecy about coming on a donkey. Right, so Zechariah 9, 9 is saying he will come on a, a donkey, the foal, the child of a donkey, whatever. Um, and then Zechariah 10, 9, 10 is this verse that his peace will be proclaimed to the nations and his rule extend from sea to sea. We have this, we have this ruling God, all-powerful. At the same time, we have the same sacrificial servant who came in absolute humility, washed his disciples' dirty feet, was humiliated on a cross. And the same servant, Jesus, is glorified beyond any human being by rising from the dead through the power of God's Spirit as the most devoted servant of God, his own son. And we have to ask, how do we respond to this? Right? This is the good news that Jesus died and rose again. And we have this opportunity to have the sin, chains of sin completely broken and come and open ourselves and accept Jesus and be like, wow, this is life as the Creator intended. And he was so committed to this way of life, of us being part of him and communion with him, that he was like, this was not good enough before. He sent his son, he sacrificed his son in order to restore the state of communion, to give us the opportunity to restore what was meant to be. He had not given up on us. He never gave up on us. And he never does give up on us. And what's more, we know that the new Jerusalem is coming, where God reigns in complete dominion, where Jesus does come, with fire, with sword, with white horse, with all sorts of crazy stuff from Revelation. And that Jerusalem will never fall to any power. And this is the hope. The hope that we have through the kingship of Christ. He came as saviour for them. He came as saviour for us. He came as saviour for all humankind who will accept him. And that is the message of the cross. And it all started, well, when God started the universe, whenever he ticked the T equals naught button. And it came to culmination then. And today, as we remember Jesus' entry to Jerusalem, as he took those faithful steps, as he took that faithful mount onto the, the donkey, and as he trotted down the hill in his upside-down triumph, He was leading to a much greater triumph with much less fanfare. And yeah, so we'll end it there, but there'll be some music if Mike can find the, the, the response songs. And just, you're welcome to you know, go and chat and carry on, but if you want to sit and just think for a bit and just pray, talk to Jesus, ask Jesus questions. Ask him if there's anything he wants to say to you. Or if you want prayer for anything specific, there are plenty of people here who would love to pray with you. Bevan, Craig, 